Amen. Good morning. Good to see you. I'll join you in prayers for Brent and Sarah and uh, hope that that is indeed the Lord's will and that that is a transition that's smooth and that you can rejoice in having a senior pastor. I know it has been about a year and a half, I guess. It's been a long uh, journey, and I can tell you as someone who's just been here occasionally and getting to see snapshots instead of being involved in the motion picture of it all, um, your progress as a church from, um, I don't know if despair would be an exaggeration or not, that's why I pause, but from heartache uh, to strength has been a blessing for me to witness. And um, the, the reason that's happened is because you were sensitive to the Holy Spirit and because you obeyed God. And I hope that you won't uh, cease doing that when you get a pastor. I think the, the opportunity you have is that you are a healthy congregation uh, and a healthy congregation being able to have a pastor is a good thing. And I would encourage you, and I will also pray for Grace Bible Church, that you won't um, let up or have a sense of, now that we have a pastor, we can pray less or work less or worship with less intensity or care for the lost less. But if you keep the intensity and the passion you have and have a senior pastor, I think God will be thrilled with that. So that's what I will pray uh, we're concluding Colossians, and so we're in chapter 4. I'm going to cover verses 2 through 6, and then just summarize 7 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 18. So you can find that if you're using a pew Bible like I am. It's on page 985. Paul uh, follows a, a pretty precise pattern when he writes whether it is Colossians or Romans, and the pattern that he uses is, is helpful to us as disciples of Jesus. He gives theology first, he gives the foundation of truth first, and then from that theology he begins to introduce actions and behavior in ministry. So here is what is true, he states first, and then here's how you should live because of it, he states second. And so late in the book of Colossians, of course, we are in the behavior section, and now we're even beyond that. These are almost just final thoughts, and so it's, it's uh, tough to preach from in a sense because it's not theology, um, it's not a truth outlined or, or one behavior outlined, it's, it's kind of sprinkled exhortations at the end of the chapter, but we'll do the best we can. Um, but I, I want to say that's helpful in your life and my life because that's how obedience works. We have theology first. We have to know the truth. And from that theology comes the appropriate action. And action without theology is, is, isn't fruit. It's, it's just behavior that may or may not be stemming from faith. And theology without action... Uh, is, isn't helpful either. It's just academia or trivia. And so we have this wonderful verse, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, which, which shows perfectly how it works. The, the truth, the theology is, this is the day that the Lord has made. The reaction, the behavior, is let's go rejoice 
and be glad in it. And so he has set up some beautiful truths um, about grace and about freedom and about not falling victim to various philosophies, and you've covered all of that in the series. And now he's giving some final words of behavior in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So let's read those verses. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In verse 7 through verse 18, he starts saying, so-and-so says hello and greets so-and-so in this house and names 10 individuals that um, he wants some hellos to be exchanged from. And so we'll conclude with that thought that while Paul seems like this heroic individual, he always worked in a team. But before then, we're going to look at that passage and see how Paul's telling people to look in, examine yourselves, look up, see who God is and give him praise and plead with him and look out, look around and see the outsiders and act appropriate towards them. So let me pray for God to give help and then we'll unpack those ideas. Jesus, I ask for myself to have clarity in the proclamation of your word. I ask that we would be open to encounter you to hear from your Holy Spirit as we look at the truth of your word and that we would be different because we came here this morning, that we would be better, that our weeks would change from what they would have been had we not gathered. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first look in, first examine yourselves. In verse 2, Paul says to continue steadfastly in prayer and be watchful. Be devoted, be intentional with it, with thanksgiving. So let's talk about prayer and thanksgiving as we examine ourselves. And I want you to entertain the question, and as I have in my preparation for this, are you devoted to prayer? Some translations say, be devoted to prayer. This translation says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And so, examining your life and examining my life, are you devoted to prayer? And what does that even mean, to be devoted to prayer? I'll give a, a vague and general definition so that it can apply to everyone, and then, of course, we'll have to apply it individually. But I think being devoted to prayer simply means that on purpose, every day, you get before the Lord. And... If, if you're like me, and I, I think that most people are like me in this way, or I'm like most people, uh, you, you have to kind of play a game with yourself and challenge yourself to be devoted to prayer. Because if, if it's the same way that you get before the Lord at the same time every single day, then maybe uh, you fall into ritual and you don't encounter the Lord. And so sometimes it may be taking a walk, and sometimes it may be on your knees, and sometimes it may be journaling, and sometimes it may be singing, and... Whatever it is, the, the bottom line is that 
every day on purpose you get before the Lord. And Paul is so wise to make this the encouragement that he gives this church because he knows that people don't need him, people need God. He doesn't say, hey, just wait and hold your questions and I'll write you another letter as soon as I can. He, he, he releases them. He says, here's how you'll be okay. Here's how you don't ever need to hear from me again. I hope to get to you, but I may not. Remember, you've probably, uh, in, the, in the series, know that this is not a church he planted. This is, he's never seen these people. He's heard about their faith. He's encouraging them. And, and what the best advice he can give them is to be devoted to prayer. Because we as humans can be helpful, but God is sovereign. <laughs> and the difference between humans being helpful and God being sovereign is, is an, even a comparable difference, right? And so our, our job is to, to go to God and to be devoted to prayer and to have him be able to talk to us as we talk to him. As they pray, he says to be watchful, be intentional, be, make it daily, make it on purpose. And he, he tells them what the fruit of their prayer should be or what they should insert into their prayer is thanksgiving. The end of verse 2. Continue steadfastly with prayer, being watchful for it with thanksgiving. And I would argue that thanksgiving is a discipline just like prayer is. That thanksgiving is not a reaction to our circumstances. We don't have to see what happens to us first to determine whether we're going to be thankful. We can be thankful regardless of what happens to us. It's a discipline, not a reaction. It's been years ago, but it was, from, it was right here from uh, the mouth of Justin Beatles, which should make everyone nervous if I'm going to tell you something he said. <laughs> Uh, he, he, he told a story once in one of his sermons about uh, a pair of twins, and one was so positive, and one was uh, on just on top of the world, and one was so scared and tentative, and, and so scientists took these twins, and they thought, well, now sur sur surely we can swap them. We can get that happy guy to, to be sad, and we can get that sad kid to be happy, and so they... Um, they put the one who was scared of everything and always sad and always complaining in a, in a room with a pony. They thought every kid likes ponies. And uh, they'd had the pony for a while and they had collected all the pony's manure and they put the other kid that was always happy in the room with all the manure, just a big pile of manure. And they said, now that'll do it. And they checked on them in an hour and the kid with the pony was in the fetal position in the corner afraid the pony was going to bite him or stomp him or something, just screaming, get the pony away from me. And they walked into the other room, and they couldn't find the other twin. He had disappeared. He was in the manure. And they said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, man, when there's this much crap somewhere, there's got to be a pony. <laughs> and, and so just the, the outlook of, is a discipline not based on circumstances. I'm sure he made that story up. But, but a story that isn't made up that I read that, that displays the same thing as a, a prisoner of war uh, during World War II who was a believer was having a terrible time. Uh, he had, his captors had decided that he was going to be the person they picked on. He was uh, abused verbally and he was beaten physically 
and he just continued to stay positive and give praise to the Lord. And they finally, to try to break him, decided that his job would be to, to clean the cesspool of the camp out. There was a pool about 10 feet wide, and you had to get in with the filter and clean it out. You had to be the human sewer. And they thought, this will break him. We'll make him do that. And in a post-war interview, he said it was the most delightful time of his life. He said it stank so bad, no one came and yelled at him. He couldn't reach him with sticks. And he said in the cesspool, he would sing in the garden. Just imagine this guy, supposed to be broken, singing in a cesspool. I come to the garden alone. When the dew's on the roses, <laughs> you see the irony? And so that is a discipline. That thanksgiving is a discipline that we decide to be thankful. We decide all that Jesse so well put this morning. We decide in, that Hosea, Hosanna is real for us, that salvation is coming and salvation is here. And we decide that God is so big that his size and his glory cast a shadow over everything we could complain about. And that we stay thankful because of that theology. And every, I challenge you to think about this, and I challenge myself to think about this, that everything we complain about could, simply with discipline, become a praise. I mean, if I think about the things I complain about, I have to admit that I could complain about my job or I could thank Jesus for my job. I could complain about one of my kids or I could thank Jesus for my kids. I could complain about my health or I could thank Jesus that I'm still alive on the planet. Everything we start to complain about, you can just flip and change the complaint to praise through discipline. And I think that is what Paul's talking about here and thinking about because he had said in other places that he had learned in whatever situation he's in to be content. It was a discipline. He had written already to always be thankful and all things give thanks. And so we know it's not reactionary. It's a discipline that we can practice. So we look in and we, we, we examine ourselves. Am I prayerful? Am I thankful? And if not, we look up and we ask God for help, and we look up and we ask God to help others, which is what he talks about in verses 3 and 4. He says, at the same time, in other words, while you're dealing with yourself, please don't forget about me. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he asked them to look up and to intercede for open doors and for clear proclamation. To, to praise God for open doors when they happen and to plead for God to give them. To praise God when clarity happens and to plead for God to give it. And we see that Paul, we see his standard of clarity. He said, pray that I will be able to proclaim this clearly because that's how I ought to proclaim it. I think I'll give you, give you two, you know, all of us should be looking for open doors and all of us should be looking for opportunities to clearly express the gospel and, and praying for others in, involved in that task for open doors and for clear proclamation. 
I think sometimes, I'll give you two camps that I see in Christian ministry, I think sometimes God gives you a burden for someone uh, or a group and you just plead with him to open that door and you don't leave. Um, Danny Combs here as youth minister was one who was burdened for the youth group and uh, whether it was tough going or not tough going, he was praying for open doors just for that group. Others of us, if he doesn't give us particular burdens, are, are to just go find the open doors and then work through them. And this might be uh, you, you, Jim Hale and the camps in, in Europe, finding where people are open to do those camps and just going there and, and doing that and making that happen. And I think that, that both are God is so pleased with. And I, and I hope that you're at one of the other. I hope that you're not outside of either one of these either you have a burden you have a passion and you're going to be the person who's going to just pray and plead for God to open that door or you don't have a general passion or burden for a set of people or an ethnic group or uh, women who are are pregnant and considering abortion which is another ministry you do here you don't have a set burden well, then your job isn't to say, well, I don't guess I do anything. Your job is to say, well, where are the doors open? And I'll just go there. And I'll just work there. I experienced a sort of miracle at SFA concerning open doors. We were, uh, I was with a ministry group, and we were, we, I don't know why. We, I forget which dorm. It was a number. And, and uh, I don't remember the name. It was 14, maybe. But... Um, for some reason, we felt compelled to go to this dorm and to tell these people about Jesus. And we, we showed up and we had like 20 pizzas. There were like four or five of us and 20 pizzas. And, and I remember standing outside and just looking at this dorm and we hadn't done any research or done, because the door was locked. You couldn't get in the dorm unless you lived there. And we're looking at each other. Do you live here? Do you? None of us lived there. So the doors were closed. And so we decide, well, okay, let's pray. Let's pray for open doors. So we get in a little huddle, and we pray, and it was awesome. While we're praying, the fire alarm goes off, and everyone in the dorm comes out. Everyone. It was amazing. Now, the, the thrill and the comfort and the burden to tell those people about Jesus was unavoidable. It wasn't like, well, I don't know if Jesus wants us to tell these people. No, you showed up, you prayed a prayer, they all came outside. Tell them about Jesus. And so we did. We passed out pizzas, we told them about Jesus, and it was incredible. And, and while that's like a, that happened in five minutes, I don't think that the story of any of us is different except for the timeline. If God tells you a place to be burdened for, and you go there and you wonder how to go in, the, you pray. You pray and, and the doors open. And it might take five years instead of five minutes, but it's what happens. And certainly Paul knew that for that to happen, prayer had to happen. And that he wanted open doors and he wanted to find those opportunities. Martin Luther once wrote he was having trouble penetrating the gospel and, and during the Reformation. To, to people, he had a dry spell, and he wrote to uh, some of his friends, you must not be praying for me. This is opening line. And if you read anything about his life, you knew he was a pretty coarse person. 
uh, he, he, he hated Jews and cussed like a sailor, and God decided to use him to do a great thing. And, and all of us have great sins that God uses us in spite of. Uh, but, but one of the things that's interesting is, is when the work wasn't going very well, he wrote back to his people and said, you're not praying very hard for me. And, and on one side, sounds like, come on, man, take some ownership. It can't be their fault. But, but to give a benefit of the doubt, it might just be that he knew nothing happens without prayer. Nothing good happens without prayer. Whenever someone comes to salvation, when there is an open door and someone meets Jesus, uh, I, was, I was taught to always ask them, who can we tell? Who can we call? Who can you tell? Who's been praying for you? And I've never known someone to say nobody. They always know somebody who's been praying for them. They always know somebody to call. And so that's our task is to be praying for open doors and to be praying for clear proclamation as you pray for Brent to preach clearly on April 8th and for you to understand not just the sermon he preaches but whether or not you want to hear sermons from him over and over again uh, continue to pray for his clarity and it becomes clearer for you as well when we pray that Mandy and I were members of Wedgwood Baptist Church which was a church in Fort Worth where there was a church shooting eight people were killed and we joined that church on the anniversary of that event it was an amazing, unique church, knowing that where you worship, there are bloodstains on the concrete under the carpet that we had seen. They pulled the pews out, they pu pulled the carpet out, and they videoed uh, church members coming in and on that concrete over those stains, writing passages from Psalms and writing, we forgive you, and and then they carpeted it, and you're standing there worshiping, knowing you're standing, literally standing over bloodstains of people who had died there because they loved Jesus. And it made everything just a little more serious, and everything, the stakes were higher. And as much as we got out of that, our whole lives changed when we decided to come early and pray with a small group for the pastor's clarity and his preaching and about 20 of us gathered every week for about a year to pray for him and um, he suddenly everything was so much better and everything was so much sweeter and so I don't know if anyone else I don't know if, if God answered our prayer for everyone and anyone noticed a difference or if God had just answered our prayer because we were the ones who prayed it but our experience was vamped up tenfold when we begin praying for that man and his messages so i encourage you to do that paul's asking this this church to do that and every church should be doing that so we look inward and examine ourselves in our prayer life we look upward and praise god for open doors and plead for him for more open doors and then we look out and around us at outsiders look at verse five and six Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
So we're supposed to be wise, walk with wisdom. We're supposed to be deliberate and urgent, make use of the time, make use of every opportunity. And we're supposed to be gracious and salty. May all of our conversations be gracious and seasoned with salt. So now it's, in this context of this passage, it's us that's, that's, that are going through the open doors. It's us that are proclaiming the gospel with these outsiders. How can we do it well? Well, with wisdom and intention and grace and, and saltiness. So let's talk about those and conclude. I think wisdom means, we have to know wisdom means, not to be able to speak so highly that people misunderstand you, but to be able to speak so simply that they do understand you. You know, the, the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus was Solomon, and people came to him for him to solve problems because they could understand his verdicts. It's a misnomer to think someone is wise because they speak in a way you can't understand. That isn't wisdom. Jesus, who said about himself, one, one greater than Solomon is here, so one wiser than Solomon, was someone that children flocked to and children could understand what he was saying. And so as we speak to outsiders, I would say the expression of wisdom is that we have to speak in a way they can understand which means we have to be in touch with them in some way. I think oftentimes we, 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 have the, we know the message, we know the gospel, that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was perfect, Jesus rose again, we know that, but the, the place we send it, the, you know, it's like sending a letter to the wrong address. It doesn't matter what great words of, of praise I want to write to one of you. If I, if I don't send it to your address, you don't get it. And that's my fault, not yours. And so we've got to understand how outsiders think to the extent that we can talk to them. We've got to understand uh, what's going on. And a simple, a simple way, perhaps, to express wisdom is simply to be intentional about knowing their story before you tell your story, before you tell his story. That, that, that it begins with listening and asking questions and being prayerful and caring, just simply loving someone so that they feel comfortable telling you their story and their life and their needs and then be relatable enough to tell them your story and your life and your needs and then have a relationship well enough to tell them his story and his life and how he never needs anything and how he can rescue anyone. So he says to be wise and he says to make most of the time be deliberate, be strategic, be urgent, make the most of the time in every interaction. So there's no idleness allowed with outsiders. We're told by Jesus we will be judged by our casual conversations. We're told in Malachi that God has overheard us talking with others and judges us for those conversations. So as we talk with people who are outside of the faith, it's, it's never idle. It's always intentional. It's always to express the gospel in love. It's always to be praying for them as we talk with them. It's always with the hope and prayer that we can move them along the spectrum of faith closer to Jesus. 
maybe not all the way to Jesus, maybe we're planting seeds, but that an interaction with us is going to move someone down the spectrum closer to Jesus and never farther away. He says for us to be gracious and for our conversation to be seasoned with salt. And certainly grace does not mean uh, to be nice. That's such a danger to be nice. Um, It can be very unloving to be nice. I love the quote of the Chronicles of Narnia where um, they're meeting Aslan for the first time and the humans don't know much about Aslan and and they they ask if he's... uh, a nice lion, and one character says, of course he's not nice. He's Aslan. He's a lion. He's not nice, but he's good. And it's wonderful drawing that distinction. And our, our job to be gracious and have conversations seasoned with salt is to not be nice, but to be good and to be gracious and to tell the truth in love. Um, I was burdened once. I had a neighbor who did an awful thing. When I lived here in Nacogdoches, they were in jail for doing this awful thing. I was keeping their dog, which is the reason they would let me go see them, so they could ask how their dog was doing. And it was the oddest thing when I went to see this person. I felt so compelled from from Jesus that what I needed to say to him was the words, you are a wicked man. It was a very odd conviction. And uh, so I had to really struggle through prayer and and ask God if I could do that if that was really what he wanted me to do it was so it became so clear and so I went and showed up and and just had to make myself and uh, sat across from him in visitation and just as quickly as I could to get it over with before fear overtook me you know how you doing he said good how's my dog good you're a wicked man and because God had convicted me to do that, he had certainly prepared his heart, and tears began to fall, and he looked down and he said, I know. And now we've got the soil to share the gospel. And I did share the gospel with him. And, and so gr- being gracious sometimes means being sharp. That's what your conversation seasoned with salt. And, and I think also we have to be mindful because we love that individual how can we, can we speak just with that individual? I wouldn't say that the program is to go tell everyone you know they're wicked. I think that individually you ask God, how can I talk to this person? Um, and he was helpful that day. So then Paul concludes with an awesome conclusion that's full of names that I can't pronounce. Uh, But I encourage you to read it just to see the team atmosphere that Paul operated under. At the beginning of Colossians, when he says who's writing, he says Paul and Timothy. Most of his books were co-authored by not just him. And then at the end of his books, he's, he's always naming people. And so we get an incorrect idea that Paul is this elite, lone ranger like missionary that's just doing all these things by himself and in reality he he formed relationships with others and they worked as a team and and the word for church the early word for church in the new testament was a word that really was translated assembly just meant assembly and it meant 
the same assembly that we have in our Constitution when we say people have the right to assemble. It meant an assembly that was assembling on purpose to bring about change. That was the first name we had, the assembly. Not just those who are gathered, but an assembly gathered on purpose to bring about change. And that's what we see here when Paul starts calling out all these people, all these people who are part of the assembly. And it was a politically charged word in the Greek, just like the right to assemble is politically understood for us, that, that the church is an organization that has a message, that has a mission, and that works strategically and politically and culturally to change things. That's what we're supposed to do. And so as we look in individually to check our prayer life and our thanksgiving and we look up to worship, uh, we begin also to look out and pray for others who are proclaiming and pray for those outside the faith and know that nothing in the, in the Christian life besides personal salvation operates just as on the individual level. That God ties our hearts together and wants us to work for his glory together. And we'll express that in communion in just a few minutes. So, Let me pray. Will the, the praise band come? We'll sing and then have communion. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your love. And I ask for this time of celebration as Easter approaches and transition as April 8th approaches that you would be with Grace Bible Church in a very unique and sweet way. That, that you would hold them in your hands and, and love them and form them and, and free them up to represent you well. And that you would be pleased with them and that they would follow you with all of their hearts and minds and souls and strength. And that they would love each other and their neighbors as they love themselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?